And um, you know, praise God for God's discipline. He disciplines those He loves. He disciplines as a sign that you are uh, you belong to Him. And we thank God for His rod and the staff, for His faithful use of these instruments uh, to bring uh, Danny back to Christ. Now, uh, Danny and I talked extensively, and, uh, and repentance has to work out. Repentance has to bear fruit, and repentance has to be done in a, in a, in a manner that's right before God and man. Uh, there are many of you that Danny has personally sinned against, and I can't forgive him on your behalf. You need to do that. So Danny will be pursuing you uh, to seek reconciliation, to meet at Calvary, to, to seek forgiveness. I pray that you would grant him every opportunity and speak the truth in love and forgive him freely as you have been forgiven. Um, concerning church, um, Danny will be attending Cornerstone uh, for the foreseeable future. But right now, our concern is that he's reconciled to Christ and Christ's family. Uh, in terms of church membership, we, we haven't um, decided on that yet. We're still going to wait, wait till he reconciled to Christ, reconciled with the elders, pastors, and members. And then whether he joins Cornerstone as a member or joins another church, will be uh, a future uh, issue that we'll deal with. You know, Danny said he'll take FOF again. You know, that's his heart in terms of, that's really serious commitment to take that class again and do the homework and paper all over again. But, but we said, well, first things first, let's take care of these other issues first and deal with the membership issue at uh, um, very last. You know, I want to get to the message, but this is a teaching opportunity to have on this Lord's Day, um, brother in Christ, repent of his sins and come back to us. Opportunity for us to kind of pause for a minute and to consider and learn a few things or be reminded of a few things. I'll remind you, first of all, of the deceptiveness of sin. Uh, each of us, we need to daily wage war against the idols in our hearts. Satan's biggest lie is the lie of little sins, small sins. We discover all these great pastors or men of faith who fall, who have disastrous falls in in the, in the public realm, and yet we know through Scripture that their fall began months, years ago, when they allowed little sins, little idols to fester in their hearts. All little sins want to be big sins when they grow up. Sin has ambition. Sin has desire to grow and to rule us. And sin takes root through our desires. So we need to be diligent in shepherding our desires and waging war and mortifying them. James 4 1 through 10, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You desire something, so you do not have, so what do you do? You murder in your hearts. You covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. 
You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly, because you're asking to spend it on your passions. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The desire for things in this world, you're desiring to be an enemy of God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of this world is making himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose that God, Scripture says without purpose that the Spirit that He dwells in us envies intensely? Therefore the conclusion is verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Let us not keep... Um, pet idols, pet desires in our hearts, and in our pride thinking we're in control. Right? We're in control. We'll never let it grow and uh, allow it to control us. Humble yourselves. I need to humble myself. Right? Lest we be taken captive to its will and so shipwreck our faith. Um, this morning is a a loud warning. All of us have been warned. All of us have been clearly, uh, we have clearly seen the destructive power of, of untethered sins uh, in our hearts. Secondly, this is what we tell people all the time. Sin boldly. Sin boldly. I don't know if I can see this or not. Uh, I don't know how right this is or, you know, how it sounds, so... Let's not record this, maybe, right? But I'm, I'm thankful for Danny. That's good. And if you're going to sin, go sin and sin boldly. If you're going to live for Christ, live for Christ. If you want to live for the world, go and live for the world. This kind of lukewarm Christianity, this kind of like two-faced, hypocritical, hypocritical Christianity benefits nobody. You're wasting your time, our time and God's time, you're not pleasing the Lord, you're not edifying the saints, you're not being an evangelistic for the gospel. If you desire to sin, go and sin boldly, and you'll reap the consequences of your sins, which is darkness and isolation and the discipline of God, and you'll repent boldly. If you're living for Christ, that's great. But if you're abiding in the church, or you are connected to people, or connect to a community, and you are just constantly lukewarm, then there is no great sin, and yet there is no great repentance. There is just lukewarmness, which Christ said, I am about to spew you out of my mouth, because it is so distasteful. So we tell, our, it's voluntary. Following Christ must be out of the overflow of our heart desires. It can't be outward religion. It can't be duty. It must not be obligation. You must not follow Christ, go to church, go to Bible study, and do all the Christian things out of external pressure. It must be holy affections, desires of your heart. And if your heart's desire is to sin, by all means chase after them. With all your strength, sin boldly. So that God might deal with you by His grace and by His rod. What we desire is that you would follow Christ boldly. Thirdly, true Christian love 
oh, brothers and sisters, we still have so much to grow in true Christian love. True Christian love is welcoming brothers back and sisters back from sin and loving them and forgiving sin. But really, it starts before all of this happens. It ought to start when we see the first inklings of uh, sin in a fellow person, fellow brother or sister in Christ. We see a speck. Then we take out, remember, the plank in our own eyes. We take that out. We do that laborious, heart-wrenching task of looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word. And we, we do that, that humiliating task of, of poking out and searching our hearts and doing spiritual surgery to take out our own sins in our own lives so that we can go to our dear brother and sister to call them to the standard of Christ's righteousness. And that's where true Christian love starts. And we have so much further to grow in that area. Uh, we, we need to uh, not be conformed to this world and its ideas of love. Right, tolerance and acceptance and just kind of this kind of like touchy-feely love and practice biblical love. We must not allow people to hide behind their ministries. Right. Oh, everything must be okay. He is doing so much ministry. She is doing so much ministry. We must not allow people to hide behind their busyness of life. Oh, you're busy. Okay, I don't want to bother you. You're busy. You got work. You got school. Or hide behind family. All of a sudden, you have a child and you're, you're a mom first and a Christian second. So a mom can sin and it's okay because they have children. Right? They're hands off because the last thing you ever do is call moms out concerning sin. Right, that's not true Christian love. Or not calling leaders or pastors or elders the standard of Christ. That's not true Christian love. All of us need Christian love. Let's uh, excel in that all the more. Um, we're thankful for the instructions found in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 13. Let's turn there. And here Paul highlights for us uh, the distinctive marks between differences between God-centered uh, repentance and man-centered repentance, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Second Corinthians seven ten for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We see this, we saw this in Peter and Judas' life. What they did was essentially the same. They both denied the Lord. But Judas was bent on paying for his own sins. It was not godly grief. It was worldly grief, worldly sorrow. So he committed suicide. He did penance so that he would pay for his own sins. Peter did not do that. Peter's sorrow was centered on God. He repented of his sins and he trusted in Christ. He wept bitterly, but he understood he could not pay for his sins, only Christ could. And the fruit of godly sorrow that leads to repentance is earnestness, eagerness. You have initiative to make things right. You're initiating because God initiated already in your heart to reconcile to God and to Christ and to Christ's church. Eagerness to clear yourselves, to make sure everything is right. Indignation, there is anger, righteous anger towards sin. Towards what sins have caused in your life, in your relationships, 
what fear, this trepidation, this fear of uh, fear of God that brings wisdom, fear of not presumptuousness, but a fear that what is what do all these sins in my life mean? Is it possible that I am not a Christian? Is it possible that I am utterly deceived? That I am not of Christ's fold? That I am of this world? That is right fear. There's, there isn't this presumptuousness, oh, I am a Christian and I'm okay. I once saved, always saved. This non-lordship mentality. What longing, what desire, heartfelt desire to seek after Christ's righteousness. What zeal, what punishment. And Paul commends them because at every point they have proved themselves innocent in the matter of their repentance. Not in their sins. They were They had sinned, but they were innocent in terms of their zeal to repent. Paul was comforted because, verse 12, he wrote to them, It was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Paul wrote a difficult letter, and their response revealed what was in their hearts before God. And Paul wanted them to see for themselves their response. And Paul is comforted because they saw for themselves genuine repentance. And then finally, um, Matthew 18, 21, the parable of the unforgiving servant, how this servant was forgiven of a debt of 10,000 talents. And this king forgave him of this great debt. He turns around and finds someone who owed him a hundred denarii. And this servant was so angry over this debt, he had him arrested. The king, when he found this out, was so angered, uh, threw him in prison. Because though he was forgiven of so great a debt, His heart was so deceived and full of pride that he would not forgive another of a much smaller debt. I'd never, to my own fault, calculated the current, uh, current, um, you know, um, money level. uh, This ten thousand talents and hundred denarii. Got an email from Eugene a few weeks ago when I shared on Matthew 21, and this is he he did the math for me. He this is what he wrote. Hey James, I just wanted to share an insight into the parable of the unforgiving servant. One denarii is one day's wages. A talent is 12,000 days wages. So if you took minimum wage at eight times, eight dollars times eight hours, to current standards, a day's wages would be $64. So this servant owed this other servant 100 denarii, which is $6,400. But this, uh, this unforgiving servant owed the king 10,000 talent, which is $7,680,000. Roughly $7.7 billion. So $6,400 is not a small sum. Yes, Danny sins against some of you. It's not insignificant. It's not nothing. It is... Um, it is an offense. 
it is legitimate. But if you withhold forgiveness to a fellow brother who confesses and repents, it is like this unforgiving servant who has been forgiven of a $7 billion debt and you will not let go of $6,400 debt. What Christ has given to us is much greater. How much more ought we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us? Let's pray together one more time. Lord, we thank you for this great privilege to see for our see with our own eyes what is taught to us in the scriptures. You have displayed before us the wonderful mercy and grace that is promised in the scriptures to all who confess your name. Lord, now the ball's on our court. We have a decision whether to be like the older brother and refuse to rejoice with you and refuse to forgive and harbor anger and bitterness in our hearts, thus proving our unfaithfulness to you and our lack of understanding of the great grace we have received in Christ. Or we can choose to rejoice with you, to have and to follow after your own heart that has forgiven us of such a great sin that we would joyfully, voluntarily, willingly forgive and welcome back our dear brother. Lord, we pray uh, that you would be glorified in each relationship, in each dialogue, in each time together, and that your word will be exalted and lifted up and the world will see uh, that we are your disciples by our genuine love for one another. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your goodness. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, shift gears for the time remaining. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 12. Let me read to you God's Word. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Last week at the Together for the Gospel conference, Pastor Piper began his sermon with these words. And these words embody my prayer for our study in verses 9 through 12. 
He said the dream for this message is that every person's life and ministry would have a radical flavor. A gutsy, radical, wartime flavor that makes average people in the church uncomfortable. A mixture of tenderness and toughness. A pervasive summons to something more, something hazardous, something wonderful. That is my prayer for all of us as we study this passage. I pray it will be your prayer. That Paul's words written here to Timothy, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, would impact each of us and move each of us and our whole church to take risks. To live radically for Christ. To exalt the cross, to exalt the gospel, to exalt God's people at the risk of shame and suffering. <clears throat> Though these words written to Timothy, there are commands to us and directly relevant to each and every one of us. Let me just do a brief review. Up to verse 8, there are no commands. Starting with verse 8, Paul gives Timothy five commands, five imperatives. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of me, gospel preacher. The third command, and that is a topic of our study this morning, is but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Suffer for the gospel by the power of God. And what is the power of God? It is the gospel, hence the title of our sermon. Suffer for the gospel, by the gospel. We started it last week a little bit, a little a look at suffering, a little bit more about suffering. Tell you that suffering in Christ, we made the distinction, suffering in Christ and suffering for Christ. Two different categories. We must not make a category mistake here. If we define suffering in the wrong way, we lose the command of this passage. Suffering in Christ is not an option. Every single one of us will suffer in Christ. Why is that? Because suffering is not an option for everyone. Everyone suffers in this world. No one, when they are born, has an option. Do you want a life filled with suffering or do you want a life without suffering? And some people say, you know what, God? You know, I'll take B, right? I'll take the blue pill. Give me the life without suffering. And some of us who like, like pain, you know, like long distance runners, right? Uh, we, you know, we want the red pill. Give, give me Life with suffering. No, that is not an option. Every single in this world experiences grief, personal loss, sorrow, and hardships. Storms of life. 
come to everyone. I don't think we all know this truth yet. And I shared this at uh, Reuben and Angie's wedding, and you know, I'll share it again. Um, and the whole Rocky series, right? It was like five or six Rockies, six Rockies. Right? First one was great, second was okay, three, four, five was awful. Maybe um, Clubber Lang was okay, but just him was okay. But Rocky three was not good. But Rocky six was very good. Rocky Balboa. There's a scene in that movie where Rocky Balboa, Sylvester Stallone, talks to his son. And you know, I thought about why I liked that scene so much, and I think part of it was growing up. Man, I needed that talk in my life. Exactly what it was a beautiful scene, right? Father talking to his son and explaining to him about life. And I go, well, yeah, you know, Serene, I told her, man, if, I, if my dad had to talk with me when I was in high school, I don't know, that would have been really helpful for me. I bet he didn't. So I had to experience, I had to learn this for myself the hard way. But, you know, he says this to his son, uh, let me tell you something you already know. This world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Apart from the grammatical mistakes, man. (laughs) It's right on. Everybody suffers. Nobody hits harder than life. This is a mean and nasty place. And no one is above suffering. And you're not special. Right? You th- if you think you're special, you have a rude awakening. Right? Life will give you a curveball and you'll realize, wow, I am not special. Now, some Christians are taught that they're special by trusting in Christ. Right? God will relieve you of suffering. Right? This health, wealth, prosperity teachers tell you that because you're a child of God, God guarantees health. God guarantees prosperity for you. You will live on a higher plane than the rest of mankind. They thoroughly misinterpret the Old Testament. The physical blessings of the Old Testament will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. In the church age, we receive all the spiritual benefits of the Old Testament, the forgiveness of our sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, community of of Christians being united together, all the spiritual blessings of knowing God's Word are experienced by believers in the church age. But the physical blessings are not for us. The physical blessings promised in the Old Testament are for the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ in Jerusalem on the earth. And during that time... We will experience for ourselves right, health, wealth, and prosperity. A plow man will overtake the reaper. Right? A child will die at 100 years old. They will all mourn. Wow, the child died so early, barely had a chance to live, and died so prematurely because living to 100 was nothing. We will have such health. We will live two, three, four hundred years old. That's for the future, not today. The fact is, everyone suffers, even Christians, and even godly Christians, even faithful Christians. And that becomes a source of uh, maybe angerness, anger and bitterness in our hearts. Like Psalm 73, look at these unrighteous people. They have no worries, no problems, no cares. They are healthy and strong. And here I am seeking to live for you, God, and I am racked with physical ailments. And we cry out unfair. 
That's life. That is the price of living in a sin-tainted world and have sin in our own flesh. Godliness doesn't absolve us or, or free us from suffering in this world. We're reading this week uh, Jane Kim's friend from Grace on Campus whose husband has throat cancer for several years. They've been going through this agonizing treatment process, chemotherapy, radiation, and then they take a test and the cancer has come back. That treatment all over again is getting weaker and they think they're out of the woods and the cancer comes back. And it's just this roller coaster ride of suffering that has gone on for years. Suffering in Christ is not an option for any of us. The only option we have is we can suffer by faith in Christ or suffer in the flesh. We can suffer nobly, with dignity, with holding on to the doctrines of the Christian faith and honor Christ through the process. We can honor Christ by blessing His name through it all by thanking God for the trials, for the purifying effect it has in our lives. We can go through suffering by prayer and and, and encourage the church by continuing to serve, continue to minister. We can honor Christ by using that suffering to evangelize to others. Right? One thing we know, it's an axiom, is that people who suffer will listen to other people who are suffering. If you've had cancer... A person who had had cancer comes talk to you, you'll listen to him or her. Right? If you've gone through a personal loss in your family, and someone comes to you and has had similar or a greater loss, your heart will be opened. You glorify God, and I glorify God, by suffering in Christ nobly, by using that suffering as stewardship for the gospel of Christ. Using that as an open opportunity to preach the gospel to others. I know what you're going through because I went through the exact same thing. And let me tell you, what, I, what helped me, what cured me. My problem was not the relief of this pain. My problem was my sins and how trials multiplied my sins. And I have the gospel for you. That is the option we have. We can choose to do that or choose to suffer as a Christian, but not nobly, not by faith, not by trusting in the gospel, right? by getting angry, being bitter, rebellion, Using suffering as an excuse to sin. Oh, I have, I have a right now to sin. I'm owed sin in my life, right? Because of this horrible thing that's happened to me, no one can dare call me to repent or confess my sins. I am, I am due, I am owed this amount of anger, selfishness, self-righteousness, and pride because of what I'm going through. Right? How dare anyone talk to me? That is an option that Christians have. But whether you will suffer in Christ or not is not an option. On the other hand, suffering for Christ is definitely an option. As a Christian, you and I can theoretically live our whole lives without suffering for Christ. Right? You can choose the blue pill. Right? Now, whether you are a true Christian or not is a legitimate question to be raised. It is. If you choose this road where you you choose not to ever suffer for Christ, it's your choice, but whether you're a Christian or not is a legitimate question to be raised. But theoretically, it is very possible, especially 
in our country, in our culture. Comfortable Christianity, taking no risks for Christ, no sacrifice, no suffering, purely a doctrine of Christianity. It's your individual choice. Just um, sit in the stands and watch. Watch Christ and watch Christians. And sad to say, in our church context, in, in America, in the Western church, this is all too common. And we can understand why. Because of those three words that are so uh, terrifying to us. Right? Three words that Paul just mentioned. Fear, shame, and suffering. Those three words cause our hearts to skip a beat. How we fear suffering. For suffering causes shame. They have a synergistic relationship. They, they ride up on each other. They, they propel each other and grow by their deadly mixture. How we experience suffering and we feel shame. Instead of feeling honor for Christ, we feel shame for Christ. And it causes us to fear and multiplies within us. Those things take root in our hearts and it paralyzes us. And so we shy away. We don't want to experience fear. We don't want to experience shame. We want to avoid suffering at all costs. Even if it means not standing for Christ. And we hear stories of brave and faithful Christians who have stood firm in Christ during their most heart-wrenching trials. We have all heard or read about these five men who gave their lives for Christ, who overcame fear, overcame uh, the threat of shame and suffering for the cause of Christ. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. These five men gave their lives for the gospel in Ecuador trying to reach out to the Kua Indians. I recently read an account by Barbara Udarian, the wife of Roger, and this is what she wrote in her diary that fateful night in January 1956. She wrote, Tonight, the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt with blue jeans. Roger was the only one who wore them. God gave me this verse two days ago. Psalm 48:14 For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide unto death. As I came face to face with the news of Roger's death, my heart was filled with praise, not fear, not shame, not pitying herself because of the suffering. She said my heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his home going. Help me, Lord, to be both mommy and daddy. We read of such believers who face such sufferings by faith, but for most of us, we don't live in the mountaintops of such faith. Most of us, we live in the valley. We walk with much smaller hearts and timid and smaller souls. We often are hard-pressed and we cower at the threats made to us by fear, 
shame, and suffering. So much so that the common version of Christianity that we see and experience in America today is this safe Christianity, comfortable Christianity, risk-free Christianity where there is no need to fear. Fear is a foreign experience. Shame, we, we, we all understand it because it's so foreign to us. And suffering, what we call suffering, is embarrassing when we compare it to the sufferings experienced by Christians throughout the world today and throughout church history. The version that is most pervasive and most popularly embraced and practiced in our part of the world is Christianity without the cross, which is Christianity without Jesus Christ. That is not what Christ calls us to. We must run toward fear. We must seek out shame, being shamed for Christ. We must take risks so that we might personally suffer for the gospel of Christ. Now, our fear is that if we were to experience such shame and suffering, we will wither up and die. We will fall away from Christ. We will not boldly stand up for Christ and we will fail. Our fear says in our hearts, I can't do it. That's not me. I'd much rather just be in the stands watching than put myself on the line. Paul deals with this. Paul goes to the heart of the matter and gives us the truths that will inspire us, motivate us, compel us, and convince us to enter the fray, to enter the fight. And through this, he convinces us, once we enter, we will stand. By the power of God, we will stand. What are these truths that inspire, motivate, compel, and convince? It is verses 9 through 11. Notice, all these verbs are in the past tense. Saved, called, verse 10, manifested, abolished, verse 11, appointed. Sound doctrine here. Reformed theology. We are motivated today. We are compelled, inspired today to be shamed for Christ and to suffer for Christ because of what God has done for us in the past. This is breathtaking revelation. This is incredible. That as Christians, we're able to stand today for Christ by looking back And for for far too many of us, we don't look back far enough. We need to take a long look into the past. And it must not be to our previous victories in ministry evangelism. It must not be even to our conversion, to our testimonies. We must look even beyond the cross. Paul tells us we must look back all the way before time began. How God in His sovereignty 
before the ages began, before creation, before anything ever was, God the Father covenanted with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to set apart a portion of all mankind who were equally sinful, depraved, and evil. And they decided to save a portion of these people, to save the elect. They knew them by name, called them to holiness, and He would do this all for His own purpose and grace. He would do it for Himself. To vindicate His own honor. To uphold His own glory. Here we see why Reformed theology, sound doctrine, a nickname of biblical Christianity, which is Calvinism, is so important. People think Calvinism is irrelevant to our lives today. It is the most relevant doctrine. They think Calvinism is, is antiquated. It's not inspiring. It's not powerful. It's the most inspiring truths. It's the most powerful and relevant truths. We must know them intimately if we're going to stand against fear, shame, and suffering. Let me kind of outline to you where we'll be going in the weeks to come. Verse 9, who saved us? Divine salvation. Salvation is not our work. It's not our achievement. God saved us. He did it all. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. He did it and it's a finished work. He's not saving us. We're not becoming saved, becoming righteous. No, He did it. Divine salvation, verse 9. Second part of verse 9, effectual salvation. He called us. Not our choice. We have no free will. He called us, so we came. We're like Lazarus. We're dead in the tomb. Our flesh is rotting. There is no free will because there is no life. There is no will. There is no freedom because there is no will. We were dead in sin, Ephesians 2. But He called us, just like Christ called Lazarus, and He called him out. God called us. And we were called out. It was not our choice. It was God's choice. The last part of verse 9, it is unconditional salvation or more rightly stated, undeserved salvation. We were saved not because we were righteous. We were saved not because we were better than other people, because we were, had more goodness or He knew we would believe or there was some vestige of, of morality in us. That is not the gospel. No, what compels us to stand against shame and suffering is that God knew we were the worst of the worst. We were the worst sinners in the world. There was nothing in us to warrant God's love. Nothing in us to prompt God to have mercy upon us. And yet He saved us, not because of our works. That truth alone should cause us to say, I want to be shamed for Christ. Because that is honoring my Savior. I want to suffer for Christ because He suffered and died for me, an undeserved sinner. Verse 10, it is salvation revealed by God, manifested to us. Manifested to us. Verse 10, which has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This gospel was not discovered by man. 
It's not man's discovery. It is not man's uh, ingenuity, academic achievement. God revealed it, manifested to us. God did that. Fifthly, salvation through Christ. Our Savior. Through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Again, it is salvation through Christ. It is not by our works, but by Jesus' work. Verse 11, salvation unto good works. We are not saved by good works. No, we are saved to do good works. We have a holy calling. We have been appointed to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. And the best work is preaching the gospel. The best good work in the world today is preaching the gospel. Right? The old argument between social gospel and biblical gospel. Greater than feeding the physical hunger is feeding spiritual hunger, preaching the gospel. And then verse 12, eternal salvation. Paul said, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's confidence in confronting his fears, Paul's confidence in experiencing shame and suffering for the gospel is not in himself. It's not, I am convinced I am such a strong-willed man. I'm, I'm a tough guy. You know, I've gone through beatings and I won't break. His confidence is not in himself. His confidence is in eternal salvation. It is not by man's perseverance, but by God's preservation. He ran to the line of the battle because he was convinced that God is able to guard what has been entrusted to him and to all of us. These are the truths that compelled and constrained Paul to suffer and not be ashamed, to not fear, but to believe and be convinced. These are truths that we'll be studying weeks to come so that we might break out of this comfortable Christianity, this risk-free, suffering-free, shame-free Christianity and endeavor to be shamed and suffer for Christ. Much time has passed. We'll close our service with this prayer. You bow with me. Oh, Father, we thank you again. Lord, in your sight, open shame belongs to us. We cannot lift our heads because uh, fear, shame, and suffering often constrain us, pressure us to not stand for you. 
we have failed too many times to count. Lord, give us a renewed vision of these glorious truths. These grand truths about you and what you have done. What you have accomplished through the crushing of your son on the cross. You designed your son to be drenched with blood. Not so that we might soak in blessing. But so that we might know the price that was paid. To purchase our sinful souls. The price that was paid to bestow upon us an infinite mercy with the great stain of our sins. Lord, we pray that our minds be renewed by the Word of God through our study. And it would not just merely remain in our minds, O oh Lord, but it would affect our hearts and ultimately affect our hands, change how we live in this world. We would not be like the world who seek comfort, seek pleasure, who seek to live a safe, risk-free lives. No, we would be loyal subjects of your kingdom, living boldly and bravely by the gospel, for the gospel, that we would eagerly run to trials and persecution so that we might be counted among the elect and so that we might show the world how much we cherish the cross, how much we delight in the law of the Lord, how much your love means to us and how true your gospel is. Lord, would you uh, help our church, help each of us to intimately know these truths so that we might share in the sufferings of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.